Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi, listeners. Just a quick heads up. Out of the Shadows tell stories of people fleeing and living in sometimes violent environments. It's the middle of summer in 1987, and the applications for IRCA have just opened up. And today, a brave group of immigrants is at the immigration office, applying for la amnistia. They're nervous. They're also scared. They have to prove to the government that they've been living in this country illegally. And this goes against everything they've done to survive in this country. Keeping a low profile, living in the shadows, dodging la migra. But today, all that changes. To everyone's surprise, the process is pretty easy. They get there at 8 a.m. and three hours later, they walk out with temporary residency cards. Just as someone snaps a picture. In the photo, they're holding up their cards like they got a winning lottery ticket. In celebration, in defiance, with pride. Everyone's dressed in their Sunday's best. There's a man sporting a bushy mustache, hands in his pockets. He's got a real 80s swagger. Wrapped around his arm is his wife, who has a small smile on her face. Next to them is a woman who looks almost shocked. Clutching her purse, standing there frozen like she's going to wake up any moment. And this will all have been a dream. Right above her are more men with mustaches, holding up their cards, some smiling, some look baffled, some with stoic faces. 
and one guy looks like he's daydreaming, his eyes darting up as the shutter clicks. And in the middle of all of that is a kid digging through his mom's purse. And it's such a small moment, but it touches my heart. Because even in the midst of history being made, kids are still kids. This beautiful mosaic of brown faces just got a shot at their American dream. And the thing about this photo is that even though it was shot 35 years ago, I can feel the weight lifting off their shoulders as they step out of the shadows. I'm Patty Rodriguez. And I'm Eric Galindo. And this is Out of the Shadows, Children of 86. Immigrants and their children have long lived in the shadows of America. Their destinies aren't just shaped by where they come from, but by their particular place in history. In 1986, the lives of millions of immigrants and their children were changed by one lucky stroke of a pen by an unlikely ally, President Ronald Reagan. This podcast will examine the ripple effects the bill had on first-generation kids of immigrants who are navigating intergenerational mobility and transforming the cultural landscape. This is an untold story of luck, timing, triumph, opportunity, survival, and of course, hope. Imagine going from never having a chance at being American, then suddenly, with one signature, you got a shot at living in this country legally. Going from being invisible in constant fear of deportation and getting paid less than everyone else to suddenly being able to do small things like getting a loan, buying a car or a house, to finally have the opportunity to plant roots. It was really a path to a new life. But this is still America, so of course it wasn't easy for everyone to apply for IRCA. Especially because it was hard to prove that they had been living here illegally. Even though most people, like Jesus Garcia, had been here for decades. Llegué en 1979, 78, un 4 de julio. Jesus came to this country from El Salvador in the late 70s. He had heard so much about America that it was paradise, a land of opportunities. And he wanted to find out for himself. When he arrived in L.A., one of the first things he did was go to the movies. In my Gris. Ah, y a nombre de, de la protagonista era Sandy. Y dije, un día que... It's the summer of 1978, and Jesus got two tickets to watch this all-American musical about teenagers falling in love, starring two superstars, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. And if you haven't guessed it yet, the movie was called Grease. Sandy, Sandy, dijo, ese nombre me gusta. And as soon as he walked out of the theater, 
Jesus swore he would name his first daughter Sandy. Sandy? And the funny thing is that Sandy is actually an immigrant from Australia. <laughs> My dream came true, he says. When Jesus heard amnesty finally passed, he was excited. But he was also scared. Jesus wasn't alone. Many people were afraid, confused, conflicted about marching into La Migra's office and telling them that they had been here undocumented. And with reason. Ever since the United States invaded Mexico, robbing them of half its territory in 1848, the U.S. has done everything in its power to keep Mexicans and Central Americans from planting roots in this country. How can you begin to trust that this country actually wants you here from one day to the next when it has spent the last 176 years showing you otherwise? Looking at the front page of the LA Times or New York Times the day after Urca was passed, you'd think it'd be dominating the headlines. We're talking about the biggest piece of immigration reform of all time. And all the attention it got was a brief mention on Section A, page 12 of the New York Times. And the LA Times, a city that's always been very Mexican. I mean, it was literally Mexico before it was America. That paper didn't put it on the front page either. Instead, they highlighted another bill that went to the president's desk. Reagan vetoing a Clean Water Act because of costs. But on Urca, nothing. Crickets. One of the things to consider is that even though Urca passed, immigration wasn't covered by media outlets the way it is now, using tragedy for clicks and making it a political issue instead of a human rights one. Journalist Marielena Salinas says... It wasn't like that back then. It was like, we, we didn't exist. We were invisible. But what's wild is that even the press got the irony of what the new law was asking immigrants to do. This is from a New York Times article published three days before Urca was signed. For years, illegal aliens have done everything possible to avoid documenting their American existence and jobs. Now, the government says that for them to remain here, they must prove they did everything they were not supposed to do. Basically, Urca wanted people, like my mom, to prove that they were living in this country undocumented since before 1982. You had to go to the INS, La Migra, and say, hey, I've been living here illegally for years, and here's proof of that. They, of course, went home and told all their friends. This is farm worker advocate Larry Kleinman. Who were saying to them, oh man, you know, uh, hey, can I, have your, uh, can I have your car in case, you know, you get arrested and don't come back? You know, that kind of like kidding, kidding on the square, as they say, you know, la cabula, right? You know, like you ain't coming back. You know, you're a damn fool to do that, to take that risk. So with all this lack of mainstream media coverage and very little outreach by the government, it left a vacuum for misinformation. Out of the Shadows will be right back. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. 
She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible... Uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the show. Our parents didn't have social media back then, but they did have cheese men, even some conspiracy theories. Entonces yo no quería. Yo, este, pues, digo, ¿para qué? Timoteo Ronces qualified for amnesty. Porque si yo acepto, este, o, o aplico, uh, me van a controlar. Yo no quiero ser controlado por, por los Estados Unidos. No quiero que tengan un control de mí. But he kept hearing so many rumors. One of them was that the government was using IRCA like a microchip to track undocumented people. Pues ya teniendo mi record, teniendo mi nombre, teniendo... Uh, and it kind of makes sense, because IRCA does sound too good to be true. 
It's like when the police do gun buybacks. No questions asked. Just bring us those guns and we'll give you a Costco gift card. Erka was asking immigrants to go into the lion's den, hope for the best, and maybe, just maybe, you'll get the chance to be American. Timoteo's dad eventually convinced him to apply. Faltaban, pienso, si no me equivoco, semanas antes de que se, se terminara el plazo. Y me, vino mi papá y me dice, dice, tienes que aplicar, dice, no pierdes esta oportunidad, porque si no aplicas, te vas a quedar fuera. And what made him change his mind? The reason why many immigrants come to this country in the first place. His daughter. And the dream of attaining an education beyond the elementary school teachings he received. Pues ya tenía una responsabilidad, ya había un compromiso más fuera de mí mismo. Pues yo ya tenía que responder por uh, alguien más. O sea, ya no era yo. Era alguien más por la cual yo tenía que responder. Y yo siempre he sido una persona que... Siempre he optado por el bienestar familiar y por la, pues, quiero decir, la educación, porque yo no tuve, no tuve la oportunidad de recibir una educación. Yo solo este, crucé tercero de primaria. It took a lot of bravery to be among the first to apply, and it was a messy process. ERCA applications opened on May 5th, 1987. That's right. Cinco de Mayo. No, I'm not kidding, and you only had a year to apply. Larry Kleinman was living in Oregon when the applications opened. So applications opened on May 5th, and the legalization office in Portland was deserted. Nobody was there, and it was pretty much deserted for the whole month of May. Folks were like, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be the first. I'm not going to be the person they experiment on. It took a lot of trust and reassurance from people like Kleinman to convince these early applicants. We had a team of 10 people all together working in different fashions in a 1,000-square-foot house. That was our office at the time, bursting at the seams. Those first group of people were nervous beyond, you know, beyond belief, right, going in there that day. But they trusted us. That was the important thing. And we said to them, whatever happens, you're going to be okay. Applying for Amnesty was like an infomercial. Initial fees are only one simple payment of $185. But if you act now, you can add one family member under 18 years of age for just $50. That's right. If you act fast, you can bring the whole family. The cap per family was set at $420. That's not including $75 for legal fees, $25 for fingerprints, and medical examinations. Let's say you got the fees covered. Now you had to go apply at an INS office. Now the first obstacle is proving that you've been in this country since before January 1st, 1982. Then you had to prove that you were self-supporting or had a job. So if you were a, quote, public charge or receiving government assistance, you were disqualified. If you were a felon, disqualified. It felt like the goalpost was constantly shifting. It was like the government opened the gates for people to come in, but they kept moving the entryway every time you got near it. The application period was a year. That's Charles Kawasaki, author of Immigration Reform, The Corpse That Will Not Die. And we were requesting an extension of another year. And the rules about who was eligible and who wasn't changed like 15 times during the course of, of that year. Even though it was the first immigration reform of its size, 
they weren't exactly hiring Tom Cruise to announce La Amnistia. The U.S. government only invested $10 million in outreach. That's a third of the estimated cost of the Iran-Contra deal, which traded American hostages for $30 million. Coincidentally, right after Reagan signed IRCA, I mean, the ink hadn't even dried yet, and the only question from the press wasn't about amnesty. It was about the Iran hostages. And Reagan gave no comment. And the other problem with that $10 million budget was... That in turn had to be used not just to inform the undocumented about their requirements, but was also designed to inform the millions of businesses in the country that they would also now be facing these new potential penalties if they hired unauthorized workers. So someone would say, oh, $10 million, that seems like it's a lot of money. But that's a pittance. That's nothing in terms of what people put into social marketing. It was up to people like journalist J. Gerardo Lopez, who covered IRCA at the time for La Opinión. He actually created a Spanish-language pamphlet for immigrant communities spreading the news of amnesty. Community effort played a huge role. When the government realized the community was entrusting the INS office, they set up centers all across local churches. And those centers accounted for 65% of all amnesty applications. For some families, the responsibility of translation fell on their children who spoke English. I feel like Latinos have this like sense of community, and especially my mom and my grandma and my aunt have always kind of been like helpful to other folks. You know what I mean? That is Reina Solis. She was about six or seven years old at that time. Her mom and abuela would go up and down the amnesty applicants line asking if anyone needed a bilingual interpreter. I do remember that vividly, that it was cold and dark and we were outside and there was just a line of people and I was just asked to come to the front of the line and translate for somebody who did not speak English. There's something you should know about Mexicans. They're resourceful as fuck. Even before IRCA passed, Mexican immigrants have been using fake documents to cross the border and get work. It was a common thing to buy a fake social security number or a Mica, the street name of a green card. My pops actually used to sell them back in the early 80s. But now Urca was asking for documents proving that you lived in the U.S. for five years. So naturally, the black market for forged documents exploded. The vast majority of that fraud was people really who had worked in agriculture, but just couldn't prove it. But Kamasaki says there were people who straight up lied. There were examples of folks who claimed that they were agricultural workers and, you know, they would be questioned and would say, well, what did you do? And they said, well, you know, I harvested tomatoes off tomato trees or gave answers that clearly demonstrated that they had never actually harvested a single tomato before. But again, most of those documents were because the system, the very idea of proof, was so complicated. And think of it even more if you're in a situation where you might have two or three families in a house, and so only the utility bill would only be in one person's name. 
Think about if you had, you were like a migrant worker and you were moving from town to town. So even things like school records, you would have to go back and pull records from, you know, five, six, seven schools or something like that. Employers were also accepting fake documents. In a study by CSULA in the late 80s, they interviewed 60 service-based businesses and found that most accepted fake documents. They weren't required to check authenticity, especially in jobs like construction and landscaping. Also, employers could take advantage of a provision that exempted checking paperwork if you only hire for a few days. So unless it was, quote, blatant, employers accepted fake documents. IRCA led to an increase in the quality of those fake documents, and the demand made the cost go up as well. It's simple economics, baby. I admire the folks who use fake documents to build a new life in the States. It is almost downright patriotic. They did what they had to to secure a future for their families. And scamming, it's one of America's great pastimes. We're a country built on new beginnings. Out of the Shadows will be right back. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, 
there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the show. Adriana Venegas was one of those people who used fake documents. Her father came first to this country in 1972 and would come back from Mexico to work seasonally. Once Urca passed and he got amnesty, he made arrangements for his wife and children to cross. Once my dad found out that he was able to sponsor his kids after legalizing himself, in 1987, he and my mom started planning the move. Her mom and dad came up with a plan. Most of my, my cousins had been born here, legalized, etc. So we essentially took borrowed cousins' birth certificates to help my siblings cross. Adriana and her siblings were about to cross the border using their cousins' birth certificates. They memorized every detail perfectly. And so, for example... I talked to my brother the other day, and he remembers practicing his lines and saying that, you know, my uncle was his dad, my aunt was his mom, and that he was my cousin. Adriana remembers the day vividly. She remembers what she was wearing, what she was doing, and even the way the sun felt on her face. In 1988, it was a summer day in July, I remember putting on my dress because I knew I was coming to the States. So I had to look nice. And so as a five-year-old, I put on this little blue dress. It had blue flowers and it had like this little bib. And I remember very vividly seeing my grandfather wave goodbye as the truck took off. And then I never saw my grandfather again. That was the last, the last time I saw them. Because once we moved here, we weren't able to go back. Her great aunt had to reassure her as they crossed. She's my grandmother's sister. And her son took me in their car. And so they told me, you don't have to do anything. You just have to sit here on my lap and fall asleep. And then once you wake up, you're, you're going to be in the States. And I said, okay, that's easy enough. I actually did end up falling asleep. And it, 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 it took us all day, I think, to cross the line. And, and at this point, it was already dark. It was night. So I just ended up falling asleep. And so once I woke up, I was in the States. And we went to my aunt's place or my uncle's place in Santa Ana while we waited for my other siblings. And one of my siblings, actually, my, my youngest brother, who's seven at the time, he ended up getting sent to second revision. So you do the first revision, and if they see that something's a little suspicious, they'll send you to the second. 
So while Adriana slept, her brother was sent to a second checkpoint. The immigration officer took it upon himself to, to question my brother. Remember, Adriana and her siblings all practiced their lines over and over. And the whole time, my brother did not break from his script. The entire time he said, I am my cousin, my cousin's name, and I am my uncle's son, and I am my aunt's son. So the immigration officer was interviewing a seven-year-old, and this seven-year-old understood his assignment. The assignment. Don't deviate from the plan, no matter what the migra says or does. He never broke. What was unbelievable was that if he hadn't practiced as much and if he hadn't, like, stuck to his script, we'd all have to go back. So the entire thing was almost on a seven-year-old's shoulders. And then he crossed. We all crossed. The bravery of these kids is so inspiring. Both Adriana and her brother had to grow up so fast in just minutes. A seven-year-old child was the hero that day. And hearing all that makes me think of my own mom. I never asked her what her experience applying for amnesty was like until now. And she says it all goes back to that backpack I told you about in the first episode. The one she was carrying as we were chased by the migra through the desert. I had a lot of proofs in my backpack, like, you know, doctor's papers, when my appointments with, when I was pregnant with Patty and John, and uh, also my work staffs, Mr. Talones de Cheque, and uh, that's it. Did you also have my dad's paperwork? I had also his papers. So you had saved them? I, yeah, because, uh, you know, I am a very organized person of everything. So... Before you left to Mexico, you didn't know anything about this. Right? I didn't know anything, and, but, and I didn't care. But at that time, I don't know what I say, but I just say, well, maybe just, like, to remember that I was here. And I put it, you know, in inside books, you know, because I, I used to read a lot, so I had a lot of books, and I and I took the books with me, and I put all the papers, you know, in there, and in others, and in envelopes, and yellow envelopes, and I, and I took those papers with me. Maybe it wasn't me, it was God that put in my, in my mind, you know, to save these papers. Call it luck or destiny, but thanks to that bag, she didn't have as hard a time applying for amnesty as others. She was able to apply at a church and have plenty of letters of recommendation. But getting amnesty, that changed everything for her. I felt free, like uh, in this country. I can't uh, describe, you know, but it was very happy. I write a letter to my, my parents right away. Mama, I got my green card. After I, I, I got my green card, you are like an eagle now, eagle, un aguila. You are free. You have the same rights as the president. They say, you are free, you are free. So I start like shaking my body and crying, and, and always keeping my mind. I have the same rights as the president, the same rights. So nobody's going to stop me. I have the same rights as the president. Those are some of the most powerful words my mom's ever spoken. 
Even back then, she could feel how monumental it was to come out of the shadows. All the struggle that she went through, crossing the border twice, just to secure my family's future. And I don't know if I could ever pay her back. But one thing I know is that I want people to know this story. I want to make sure that these voices are heard, because even today, there are people still living in the shadows. Millions of people. Erka is the story of multiple realities. These people that we talked to were just some of the few who were able to get amnesty. They were the lucky ones. It was life-changing for Patty's mom, my parents, Adriana, and Timoteo, and all the people in the photo we told you about at the top of the show. Those people in the photo were only there because of Larry Kleinman. He felt like he was part of something bigger. And the smiles were palpable 25 feet away. People could imagine raising families. People could imagine establishing themselves permanently. People could imagine themselves going to work and not being afraid of not coming home at the end of the day. But at the same time, Erka was a reminder to folks living in this country, being American as can be, that they still weren't wanted. And given how difficult it was to apply, I don't know. Imagine how many more people could have got an amnesty. Most analysts believe that at least 25% of the eligible population never got legalized. Remember, this is still a story of luck. Like Jesus Garcia, the big Grease fan, he wasn't so lucky. Antes de venirlos a vivir ahí, siempre tiempo habían pandillas. Jesus never even got to apply for amnesty. He was too afraid because he had a criminal record. The cops arrested him and a group of Salvadoreños because they thought he was associated with MS-13. But in order to understand how that went down, we have to go back to El Salvador in the late 1970s. You'll hear that story next episode. Los Caminos de la Vida! Next time on Out of the Shadows, Children of 86. Los Caminos de la Vida! The story gets even more complicated and painful as we take a look at what it was like for people like Jesus, people who weren't Mexican. And to talk about that, we have to look at Reagan's other legacy, his destruction of Central America. If you love this podcast, please help us get the word out by following, rating, reviewing, and sharing it with your friends. Out of the Shadows is written by Cesar Hernandez. It's also written, edited, hosted, and executive produced by Patty Rodriguez and Eric Galindo. It's produced by Betsy Cardenas, Karen Lopez, and Gabby Watts. It's sound design, mixed, and mastered by Jesse Nyswanger. Our studio engineer is Clay Hillenberg. Karen Garcia, that's me, is our announcer. Out of the Shadows is a production of Sin Miedo Productions and School of Humans in partnership with iHeart's My Cultura Podcast Network. The podcast is also executive produced by Giselle Bances, Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and Chad Crowley. Our marketing and art team is led by Jasmine Mejia. Original music by A. Arenas. 
And if you loved his cover of Los Caminos de la Vida, this podcast theme song, you can listen to it on all music platforms. Historical audio for Out of the Shadows comes from the Reagan Presidential Library and the National Archives. Special thanks to Ian Vargas, Alex and Ollie, Caitlin Becker, Gab Chabran, Daisy Church, Angel Lopez Galindo, Juliana Gamis, Ryan Gordon, Brian Matheson, Claudia Marticorena, Oscar Ramirez, John Rodriguez, Juan Rodriguez, Joshua Sandoval, Eric Sklar, Tony Sorrentino, and Megan Tan. chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen and with resi priority notify and global dining access through my amex platinum card right this way it's nice to try someone else's food for a change that's the powerful backing of american express terms apply learn more at americanexpress.com slash with amex hey girlfriends it's me carol fisher back with another season of the global number one podcast the girlfriends last time we investigated the murder of gail katz This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's of kid treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.